Section 6 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 26. I Fall Under This Plot. When Macbeth is contrasting his own condition as a living man with that of him whom he has done to death, he numbers among the troubles which wait upon his own life malice domestic, foreign levies. If Marlborough had been studying in advance the causes of his own downfall, he would have had no occasion to include foreign levies among them, and might have fairly ascribed them all to malice domestic, at least to the malice of his enemies at home. It is not too much to say that the whole conditions of Europe might have been altered for a time, if the victor of Blenheim could still have retained his position of ascendancy over the movements of Queen Anne's government. Whether we approve or disapprove of the policy which brought the long war to an end, we can hardly have any doubt that the result of the war and the terms of its final settlement would have been entirely different if Marlborough had been allowed to carry on his forward movement into the heart of France. By no set of men at home or abroad was Marlborough's strength more completely recognized than by those of his own countrymen, who now found themselves compelled to choose between renouncing their cherished policy and forcing Marlborough out of their way. The Queen's advisers were confident of the strength they had acquired in the new Parliament, and were well resolved to increase that strength by whatever means the utmost straining of constitutional authority could place within their power. It may be mentioned as significant evidence of the control which the ministers had obtained over the new Parliament that they were able to get the measure against occasional conformity passed into law on March 12, 1712. This measure, it will be remembered, had been introduced again and again and was carried in the House of Commons more than once, but was lost in the House of Lords. The title of the measure began, An Act for Preserving the Protestant Religion by Better Securing the Church of England as by Law Established, and the title further described it as intended to continue the toleration granted to Protestant dissenters by former legislation. The purpose of the measure was to declare that anyone, whether he had occasionally conformed or not, who held a government or corporation office was to be disqualified by the act if he afterwards attended the meeting of a conventicle. Nor was this unlucky person left in any doubt as to the precise nature of his offense. A conventicle was defined to be a meeting of ten persons or more, occupied in religious ceremonial or worship other than that authorized by the English prayer book, and even though the conventicle should be held in private dwelling for the purpose of concealment, the law declared the meeting equally penal if there were ten persons present besides the members of the family who occupied the home. Even if the liturgy of the Church of England were ostensibly used on such occasions, the penalty was still to be enforced if prayer for the Princess Sophia, whose name stood next in succession to that of Queen Anne, 
were omitted from the disloyal ceremonial. Each offender under such conditions would be liable to a fine of forty pounds and would be incapable of holding any office under government or under a corporate body. The object of this act was not merely to discourage dissent, but also to prohibit any manifestation, either by omission or commission, of sympathy with the cause of the exiled Stuarts. We can easily understand that the mind and heart of Bolingbroke were not any more than the mind and heart of Queen Anne herself, profoundly concerned in the passing of such a measure, but the time seemed to require it, and both the Queen and Bolingbroke felt constrained to go with the time. The first opportunity was seized for satisfying the passion of religious intolerance throughout the community, and the measure at last was thus carried into law. The men in power began to feel that the time had come when a decisive blow must be struck for the accomplishment of the purpose they had at heart. They felt, too, that the decisive blow must be directed against Marlborough. The day of coup d'etat had not yet passed from the course of English history. Men of the time had seen what may be called the conquest of England by William III. They had seen the old dynasty of the Stuarts deposed and its hereditary representatives driven into exile. They had seen a Stuart princess called to the throne under conditions which made her the sovereign of a constitutional monarchy. A Stuart princess who was herself a devoted member of the Church of England. They had seen the hereditary succession transferred by Act of Parliament to a foreign family living in Germany. Such a generation could not yet have grown into anything like a genuine recognition of the true principles of constitutional government, and could hardly feel surprised when the practices of constitutional government itself were made available for the purpose of accomplishing something very like an act of despotic power. The result of the recent elections had made it clear to those now at the head of the state that they had a force behind them strong enough to maintain them in the carrying of measures to accomplish their immediate purpose, even though a part of that purpose might be the overthrow of the great soldier who had borne the flag of England in triumph over so many foreign battlefields. The House of Commons might be safely counted on to maintain Harley and Bolingbroke in the projects which they were determined to carry out, but it was anticipated that there would be some difficulty with the House of Lords. Now the House of Lords has at all times since parliamentary government came to be established in England been regarded as the chief obstacle to the accomplishment of great measures tending toward political progress and the principle of civic equality and popular freedom. Of late years we have come to regard it as no longer a power to prevent the ultimate passing of such measures, but only as a power to obstruct and delay them for a time, until the loudly and resolutely expressed determination of the majority outside shall have convinced the obstructive peers that the time has come for them either to give in or to run the risk of destroying their own institution. It has, however, happened every now and then, at times since the Revolution of 1688, 
that the House of Lords shows in particular instances a creditable and honourable desire to resist some act of despotic force on the part of the majority in the House of Commons. The leaders of the state at that period of Queen Anne's reign, which we have now reached, felt well satisfied that the overthrow of Marlborough was not to be accomplished without a strong opposition on the part of the hereditary assembly, and they knew that the Constitution itself had provided them with an easy way of getting over the difficulty. On December 7, 1711, Parliament was opened as usual by Queen Anne in person. The speech from the throne contained an announcement which could have left no doubt among all who heard and all who afterwards read it that the mind of the government was made up to bring the war to a close under whatever conditions. I am glad, the royal speech declared, that I can now tell you that notwithstanding the arts of those who delight in war, both place and time are appointed for opening the treaty of a general peace. There could be no doubt in the mind of anyone that the allusion to those who delight in war proclaimed the doom of Marlborough. Not only was a peace to be made, but an example was also to be made of the great commander, but for whose genius in war, peace at any price might long ago have been enforced on England. One of the peers on whom the government especially relied, and who had travelled a long journey in order that he might be able to take a part in the debate, made a speech which showed more plainly still the intentions of the statesmen in power. This peer was the Earl of Anglesey. He emphatically declared in his speech that it ought to be left to Her Majesty herself to conclude a peace when she thought it convenient for the good of her subjects, and he added that we might have enjoyed that blessing soon after the Battle of Ramillies if the same had not been put off by some persons whose interest it was to prolong the war. The Queen had left the throne, according to the usual form, soon after the delivery of the royal speech, but she had not left the house itself. She merely retired to the royal enclosure or pavilion, which was always prepared for her, and where she remained sometimes in order that she might listen to the debate. The occasion was assuredly one of great moment and of something like dramatic interest in the story of the crisis. The Duke of Marlborough was in the house, and his rising at once to take part in the debate showed how thoroughly he understood the entire significance of the words which had been delivered from the throne, and of those which had been spoken by the peer who had further illustrated their meaning. Marlborough was no more of an orator than Napoleon Bonaparte or the Duke of Wellington. The gift of eloquence is not often bestowed on great military commanders, and Julius Caesar remains in history one of the few examples of a great warrior who was also a great orator. Marlborough seldom took part in parliamentary debate and was not fond of speech-making at any time or under any conditions, but his speech on this occasion showed that quiet and complete self-control which never seemed to desert him at the most trying moments of his career, whether on the battlefield or in the council chamber, 
and it wanted nothing of the dignity which ought to belong to the utterance of such a man at such a moment. Marlborough told the House of Lords that he could appeal with perfect confidence to the Queen herself to say whether, during the time that he had served her as general and as plenipotentiary, he had ever failed to inform her and her council of all proposals of peace that had been made, and had not constantly applied to her that she would give him instructions as to the course which he ought to pursue under the conditions which he had brought to her knowledge. Then he went on to declare in tones of the deepest earnestness that he had ever been desirous of a safe, honorable, and lasting peace, and that nothing had ever been farther from his purpose than any thought of prolonging the war for his own private advantage, as his enemies had most falsely insinuated against him. He assured the House that if there was nothing else to inspire him with a desire for lasting peace, his own advancing years and the long fatigues and troubles he had undergone made him earnestly wish, above all things, for retirement and repose, in order that the remainder of his life might be given up to the preparation for eternity. He called upon the House to take account of the fact that he could no longer have the slightest motive to desire a continuance of the war, seeing that he had already been most generously rewarded and had honors and wealth heaped upon him far beyond his desert and his expectation, both by Her Majesty and her parliaments. But he took the opportunity of declaring that he was of the same opinion as the rest of the Allies that the safety and liberties of Europe would be left in imminent danger if Spain and the West Indies were surrendered to the House of Bourbon. There can be no doubt that the Duke of Marlborough's words made a deep impression on a large number of those to whom they were addressed. The opinion of such listeners was in all probability only a forecast of the judgment which history has since adopted and maintained. Whatever the public and private errors and faults of Marlborough, there seems no just reason to believe that in his great career as a soldier he was inspired and governed mainly, as so many other famous soldiers have been, by a love of war for its own excitements and its own successes, by a love of conquest and a passion for military renown and for personal aggrandizement. Given the policy of the war against France, there is no reason to accuse Marlborough of any ambition other than the ambition to conduct that war to a complete and a lasting success. The fault to be found with the policy of the war must be traced back to a period of history before the time when Marlborough could be justly accredited with any power to direct the statesmanship of England. Those who were satisfied that the safety of England and the stability of the revolution accomplished by William III depended on a stern resistance to the expansion of French dominion over Spain and other parts of the European continent, could have no fault to find with Marlborough for the manner in which he endeavored to conduct this policy to success. There was, therefore, direct and immediate significance in the words which he used when he insisted that the liberties of Europe would still be left in danger 
if security were not obtained against the extension of Bourbon dominion over Spain and the West Indies. At this distance of time, it is easy enough to contend that the dearest interests of England were involved in maintaining the internal prosperity of the English people and the populations under English rule, and that it mattered little to these populations whether one sovereign or another reigned over the Spanish people. But at the time when Marlborough was thus addressing the House of Lords, no idea of this order had come up as an element in British statesmanship. Indeed, the thought of a policy which merely concerned itself with the welfare of the populations under English rule and disclaimed the principle of intervention in the affairs of foreign countries would have been as strange and intolerable to the statesmanship of England just after the French Revolution as it was to the statesmanship of England under Queen Anne. It must have been clear to every mind at the time when this debate was taking place in the House of Lords that the words of the royal speech were intended to convey a censure, not upon the policy of the war, but upon Marlborough himself. An amendment to the address was moved by the Earl of Nottingham, which, if it did not actually express this sentiment, yet went at least so far as to adopt and to vindicate the warning conveyed by Marlborough at the close of his speech. The amendment called for the insertion of a special clause in the address declaring that in the opinion of the House, no peace could be safe or honorable to Great Britain or Europe if Spain and the West Indies were allotted to any branch of the House of Bourbon. This was, of course, an amendment hostile to the ministry, and it was carried on a division by a majority of 62 against 54. The government, however, did not think it judicious to treat the amendment as one of hostile intention. This was merely a question of parliamentary tactics, and as the government were not by any means prepared to declare that further annexations by the House of Bourbon would not be fraught with danger to the liberties of Great Britain and of Europe in general, there seemed no unavoidable necessity for the advisers of the Queen to treat the amendment as anything other than a reasonable or at all events harmless addition to the text of the address. The clause was therefore inserted without any further division, and the trouble was over, for the time, in the House of Lords. The Queen's ministers were strong and safe in the House of Commons. There, too, an amendment was moved declaring that no peace could be lasting which allowed Spain and the West Indies to become part of the dominion of the House of Bourbon. The amendment proposed in the Commons was made additionally emphatic by words which declared that a peace established on such terms might endanger the safety of Her Majesty's person and government, the Protestant succession in the House of Hanover, and the liberty of Europe. This amendment, when pressed to a division, was rejected by a majority of 232 against 106. The government made up their minds to secure their position in the House of Lords by a bold and unusual step, the creation of twelve new peers. Such a course is unquestionably within the power of the crown. In more recent times, the threat that the power would, if necessary, be called into actual exercise has, on more than one memorable occasion, 
been found enough to overcome the intended resistance of the House of Lords and to compel the peers to submit to the will of the sovereign and the majority without subjecting themselves to the intrusion at one moment of several new and unwelcome members. The advisers of Queen Anne carried out their purpose without waiting to give to the Lords any choice of action. Twelve new peers were at once added to the numbers of the hereditary chamber. So open and obvious was the purpose of this creation that three or four of the new peers were the eldest sons of noblemen who themselves sat in the House of Lords, and the sons would, in the ordinary course of events, succeed to the seats occupied by their fathers. It need hardly be said that the new men thus introduced were the heirs of peers who were known to be devoted followers of the government. A certain feeling of astonishment and even a sensation of scandal was aroused when it was announced that one of the new peers was Sir Samuel Masham, the husband of the Queen's latest favourite. Two of the new men were distinguished lawyers who might in any case have been regarded as likely to obtain the reward of a peerage and several others were fairly well entitled to such an elevation. But, of course, the obvious meaning of the whole arrangement was to bring at once into the House of Lords a number of steady Tories who could be relied upon to follow the ministers faithfully in whatever course it was their pleasure to take. An amusing story which has found its way into accepted record tells that when the new peers took their seats in the House of Lords for the first time, a Whig nobleman scornfully put the question whether the twelve who had thus been simultaneously summoned to attend were prepared to vote separately or through the mouth of their foreman. The whole event has a certain historical value, if only because it shows that the Queen's advisers were determined to have their way and cared a little whether such independent opinion as might then be in existence approved or disapproved of the peremptory action by which they had secured the power to carry out their policy. It was always a relief to the Queen's mind to find herself under strong and resolute guidance, and this time at least her own inclinations were entirely on the side of those who could make it clear to her that she was now following her own wishes and theirs without any actual infringement of the authority which was given to her by the Constitution the crushing blow soon came. The Queen wrote a letter to Marlborough with her own hand, in which she announced to him his dismissal from all his public appointments. She informed him that accusations had been made against him to the effect that he had actually taken perquisites himself from a Jewish contractor, who had entered into an engagement to supply the army with bread, and that the monies received by Marlborough in this manner had amounted during the past few years to a sum of more than £60,000. The Queen also told him that he had been charged with deducting 2.5% from the pay which the Sovereign allowed to her foreign soldiers, and that this latter acquisition amounted during the same time to a sum not far short of £200,000. Marlborough sent to the Queen a reply which certainly bore in it a complete vindication of his conduct according to the recognized principles of his position and his office at the time. He declared 
that he had received the monies in accordance with all the precedents and practices accepted by other men who held command like his, and that in any case the money had never been employed for his private use, but had been expended for the purpose of obtaining secret intelligence about the movements of the enemy and for other objects which were recognized as part of the regular and permissible business of warfare. Nothing could be more positive than his declaration that no part of the sums thus received had gone into his own purse or had been expended in any manner directly or indirectly for his own personal interest. The charges which the Queen embodied in her letter to Marlborough were founded on the report of a commission appointed to inquire into and report upon the state of the public accounts. This report was published in January 1712. Marlborough was then at The Hague, and he dispatched at once to the commissioners a formal statement of his case, of his defense, as it may well be called. His letter contains the frank admission that certain sums were received by the commander-in-chief, but he declared that it had been the recognized privilege of the British generals commanding in the Low Countries both before the Revolution and since to accept such allowances, and he assured the commissioners at the same time in the most earnest manner that whatever sums I have received on that account have constantly been applied to the service of the public in keeping secret correspondence and getting intelligence of the enemy's notions and designs. So far as we can now judge of impartial public opinion at the time, it would certainly seem that such impartial public opinion as there was gave a cordial acceptance to Marlborough's explanation. Marlborough had followed precedents which we must now all regard as decidedly objectionable, but he had only followed precedents and had devised no evil practices of his own that a man holding the position of commander-in-chief should receive any allowance or perquisites whatever from the contractors who supplied his army with stores, or should be allowed to make any deductions from the rate of payment authorized by the sovereign for the maintenance of foreign mercenaries, appears to us now an utterly unjustifiable and monstrous practice. But when Marlborough asserted that such had been the recognized practice for men in his position, both before and since the Revolution, there does not appear to have been any indignant denial on the part of those who must have been well qualified to speak as to the accuracy of his assertions. The word of the great soldier may fairly be believed when he declared that the money which had thus come into his hands had been applied by him for purposes which he considered to be advantageous to the national cause and had not been pocketed by him as bribes and spent for his own personal advantage. Marlborough had undoubtedly acquired a reputation for avarice and love of gain, and his wife was generally believed to have always kept a steady eye on any chances of personal acquisition. Such suspicions as these, however, were prevalent and common when Marlborough was at the height of his favor with sovereign and public, but they had never before taken the shape of direct and odious charges amounting to personal corruption and peculation of state money. Marlborough's enemies had now no thought of considering calmly the charges made against him. His ruin was determined on, and the chief anxiety of those who were leagued against him was lest the Queen might be induced to delay her action, 
and in the meantime some revulsion of feeling in the public mind, as the whole story became known, might come to the help of the great soldier, and insist that he must at least have a fair and open trial. The charges made against him by the report of the commission were welcomed by the men in power, because they gave what seemed to be a reasonable excuse for a decision which had already been determined on. The doom was then proclaimed. Thus the great career of Marlborough came to an end. He withdrew from public life altogether and remained but a short time in England. The death of his old friend and companion Godolphin, the statesman who had managed with skill and success the financial arrangements necessary for the opening campaigns of the Great War, occurred a few months after Marlborough's fall. Godolphin died at Marlborough's own house near St. Albans on September 15, 1712. This melancholy event, this passing away of the colleague who had worked with him in the springtime of his fame, must no doubt have made life in England more and more distasteful to Marlborough, and it would have been trying enough in any case to such a man, who never professed to be of a philosophic turn, to endure an existence of inactivity and something like obscurity at home. He went abroad and did not return to England until the accession of George I opened for him a welcome and a restoration of the honors and dignities which had been so suddenly taken from him. At this time of day, when we can survey the whole career of the man with minds free from political partiality, we may safely come to the conclusion that he was not guilty of the worst and most ignoble charges urged against him by his political enemies. He may be freely acquitted of the charges of peculation and embezzlement, which were put forward as the cause of his disgrace. Some of the financial arrangements which were imputed as crimes to him would hardly be regarded in our days as justifiable transactions on the part of an English commander-in-chief, but it must be remembered that many acts which were not considered irregularities in those days would be set down as irregular and intolerable in a time like the present. This fact, of course, would not justify or excuse some of the acts which Marlborough was accused of having committed, for if they had been matters of common occurrence in the business of a commander-in-chief, they could not possibly have been turned at a moment's notice into actual crimes, even by the most audacious and unscrupulous of political enemies. Some of the acts charged against Marlborough were undoubtedly offenses against the civil and moral code of that time, as well as against the civil and moral code of our own day. But these are the charges of which Marlborough declared himself to be absolutely innocent, with regard to which he gave substantial proofs of his innocence, and about which, even at the time, his enemies were unable to discredit his testimony. The worst allegations that were made against him seem to have been made but as an afterthought, and in the hope of finding justification for a step which those who had had too much of him were already, and in any case, determined to take. The judgment of history must be that whatever Marlborough's faults, he was treated by his country with ingratitude. He had served England on the battlefield as she has seldom been served before or since, and his name must ever rank with the names of the greatest commanders in history. When we think of his want of political principle, 
we must always bear in mind that the political principles of that time were in a curiously fluid and unsettled state, that the queen on her throne saw herself sometimes compelled to act as the agent of systems and opinions with which in her heart she had no sympathy, that the cause of the Stuarts found embattled advocates on British soil more than once after Queen Anne had passed away. Marlborough was only like some other men high in office and in power when he was found in confidential communication, now and then, with the representatives of that which was not even yet believed to be a cause wholly lost and a dynasty dethroned forever. He was an ambitious man and in many ways a selfish man, and he never proclaimed any exalted standard of public or private morality. But there is no reason whatever to doubt that while he was engaged in the work for which his genius so splendidly qualified him, he had in his mind and at his heart above all other objects the success of the state and of the cause which he represented on the field of battle. Whatever judgment may be formed as to the value of the peace which was brought about by Marlborough's political enemies, there can be no question that he was absolutely sincere in his conviction that such a peace would not prove to be worth the price which his country would have to pay for it. Were he entirely in the wrong and they entirely in the right on this question, the judgment of history on Marlborough's personal integrity of purpose must remain absolutely unaltered. It is easy to understand that a constitutional sovereign might have seen some danger to the crown and to the state in the popularity of such a man and in the possibility of his becoming a sort of military dictator. But no consideration of this kind can affect the verdict of history as to the course which was taken to bring about the ruin of Marlborough and the policy which was adopted in order to give that course a semblance of justification. The story of Marlborough's fall forms the darkest chapter in the record of Queen Anne's reign. End of section 6